0: Humble beginnings from the sermon series The Moral of the Story spoken by Pastor Clayton Chan One of the things that I like to do in my free time is to watch home renovation shows. Right. I love HGTV. I love watching people take these battered and old homes and making them beautiful again. I find it so inspiring when there's the transformation that happens when they take this neglected home and breathe new life into it. It's, it's a little odd, it's a little weird, but I find it somewhat spiritual watching these shows. Right? It's a reminder of God's transformative work in us. That we are broken people, and yet still God breathes new life into us. And so I have a love for old homes and looking at the potential of them. And so when it was time for Esther and I to look for a home for ourselves, I was all about finding a fixer-upper. Right? I was all about finding a fixer-upper. But when I say fixer-upper, I don't mean like a house that needed a complete overhaul. Right? I didn't want to strip everything down to its studs and replace everything. I just wanted a home where I could just, you know, a little TLC, you know, a little paint, you know, reconfigure this and that, but to restore a home back to its beauty. Esther was not about that fixer-upper life. Right? She wanted a move-in-ready home. And so we were looking for these homes, but because of the hot housing market, we kept getting priced out of these move-in-ready homes. And so fortunately for me, but unfortunately for her, we settled on a fixer-upper. And I wish I could tell you that it's been the most amazing experience, but it hasn't. Right? Living through a renovation is tiring. It's hard, it has a lot of heartache. We had, for months, we didn't have a kitchen. We ate a lot of takeout, and we had to wash our dishes in the laundry room sink. There was constant. We had to be constantly alert because we have a toddler running around, and we're afraid that Wes would run into the work site and pick up tools and start hammering things. There's constant vacuuming. Right? With any project that you do in the home, there's always dust. And so every second, every moment, you're vacuuming. There was times where Esther had to give me a gentle nudge about finishing this project or that project because, to be honest, most of the work happened at night and I would be tired. And so I just didn't want to finish these last details. There was even one time where I pulled an all-nighter because I had to take out all of the tile grout because I hadn't done it properly. And so I, sat there, or I stood there just taking out all of the tile grout for hours and hours and then reinstalling the grout. Renovating a home takes a lot of work, it's a lot of heartache, but in the end, for me at least, it was all worth it. Right? You might have to ask Esther, she might have a different answer. We still have a few more projects to do, right? we still have to build out our mudroom, we still have to refresh our laundry room, but there has been a complete transformation of our home. We took a home that was stuck in the 1950s with a pink bathroom. And when I say pink bathroom, it's like pink tiles, pink flooring, pink sink, pink toilet, pink uh, bathtub, pink wallpaper. I've never seen so much pink in my life. And a a house full of just wallpaper. Every single wall had wallpaper in it. I thought it would be an easy fix. You just take it off and repaint it, but it's not. It is not. I learned a lot. We took this home stuck in the 1950s and we turned it into this more modern and inviting home. Our home has come a long way from its humble beginnings. Jesus gives a similar picture of the kingdom and its humble beginnings. Jesus has been revealing truths about the kingdom of heaven to this crowd that has gathered at the Sea of Galilee. And so in the parables that we're covering today, the third and fourth parable we're gonna see a picture of how great the kingdom is. As we continue in our sermon series on the parables of Jesus, will you turn with me to our passage today, which is from Matthew chapter 13, and we're gonna read from verses 31 through 35. So Matthew chapter 13, verses 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed and yeast, but unique to these parables is that he does not offer an explanation. In the first two parables, which we covered in the last couple of weeks, Jesus tells us the meaning behind those parables. Pastor Doug started us off with the parable of the sower. And in that parable, Jesus reveals that the kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, God is looking for good soil to, for his word to take root in. God will never force his way into our lives. He wants a relationship with us. And it's the condition of our hearts that determine whether his word will take root in our lives. Pastor Sinia preached a wonderful word about the divine sorting, right? The parable of the weeds. The reality is that in this moment, there are both weeds and wheat in the world. But it's by God's grace and wisdom that he does not pull out the weeds But there will be one day where he will separate the weeds from the wheat, and we will have to take an account for where we stand. Jesus does not tell the crowd the meaning behind these parables, the mustard seed and the yeast, and he has a reason for for not doing so. He wants to test the condition of the hearts of those who are listening to him that day. He wants to force those listening to make a decision. Among the crowd, there were those who were leaning towards following Jesus, becoming a disciple of his. But then there were also those who were following the Pharisees and who want to oppose Jesus. And yet, there was another group, people who were on the commitment fence. By their response, he will know whose heart is hardened and whose heart is receptive to what he has to say. For those who have hardened hearts, these parables will be a mystery And that mystery they won't ever want to find out about. But for those who have faith, these parables take on greater meaning. They are able to see with the Holy Spirit's help what the actual meaning is. In verse 31, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. What is unusual about this description is that Jesus says it is a single seed and the man planted it in a field rather than a garden. A mustard seed was usually planted in a garden. That was the norm. But he continues in verse 32. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds come and perch in its branches. The mustard seed is, in fact, not the smallest of all seeds. Some people will point to this and say that Jesus lied, that he spoke untruth. But Jesus knows that the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed. In making this statement, Jesus is appealing to a well-known understanding of the Jews. His point is that the smallest seed in their eyes will one day become a tree. A mustard seed was very small, but it had the potential to grow to be ten feet tall. Now, when we read this part about the birds coming and perching in its branches, we might interpret this as a function of the kingdom and think that the birds resting on the branches is representative of those who find rest, those who are weary and find rest in the kingdom. But the branch in this parable is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 6. Ezekiel 31, 6 says. All the birds of the sky nested in its boughs. All the animals of the wild gave birth under its branches. All the great nations lived in its shade. The prophet Ezekiel describes the kingdom of God in these verses. In the end, God's kingdom will be represented by every nation. What was once started... What was once started as a small and tiny mustard seed will one day become a great tree. And in its final form, the kingdom of heaven will be so vast and include people of all nations. But this is not just our hope for the future, this is our hope for today. The hope of the church is that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue would come to know Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is both a present and future reality. Jesus continues with another parable in verse 33. He tells the crowd, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Right? Again, Jesus uses a common item to reveal a spiritual truth. This time he says that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast But a better translation would be leaven. Leaven was a piece of old dough saved from a previous batch that was put into new dough to make that bread rise. For those hearing the parable, there might have been confusion about what Jesus is saying in this moment because leaven was used as a symbol for evil. But here, God flips that definition on its head and he says that the kingdom of heaven has a positive spin on it. The leaven is but a small amount, but it has a huge impact. In both parables, Jesus uses these two small items to illustrate a spiritual truth. Just as a small seed will turn into a large and mature tree, and the small portion of leaven will permeate through the new dough, the kingdom of God will start small, but it will become great. And that's what we see. Jesus was born with little fanfare. Jesus did not get a king's welcome. He was born in a manger among animals. He was the son of a carpenter, and his disciples consisted of a ragtag group of, revol- of revolutionary fishermen and tax collectors. He did not choose the gifted or influential. You would think if Jesus were trying to be strategic, he about expanding the kingdom, he would have chosen people who had a lot of influence or a big platform, but he chose ordinary men with very little clout. It's from this humble beginning that the church has started, that the church started and has flourished over thousands of years. It's from the humility and meekness of the of our savior Jesus where we trace our spiritual lineage but we have the gift of hindsight. It's easy for us to sit back and look at history and say, look at God's prophetic words and say, oh yeah, that's how it played out. But to truly understand why Jesus spoke these parables to that crowd, we have to understand the mindset of that crowd hearing these words today. The reason Jesus speaks these parables to the crowd is because he wants to clarify a misunderstanding, a misconception about who he is and what the kingdom is all about. To many, Jesus and his kingdom didn't match up with the hype, right? Have you ever been so disappointed because whatever you were hoping for was not what you expected, right? Maybe it was a movie. Your friend tells you, hey, you got to watch this movie. It's the greatest movie ever. You go and watch it. You're like, it's just all right. Or maybe, you know, you have a friend, right? We know a pastor who does this a lot, but he'll be like, this is the best food. You got to go to this restaurant, And you go and you're like, uh, Pastor Peter, it's just all right. (laughs) The hype around Jesus was sky high. People had all these expectations about the coming Savior and what he would accomplish. So Jesus tells this parable in correcting their misunderstanding. Israel always believed that when God's kingdom was established on earth, it would be great. They believed that the Messiah would come and be this political and military leader who had power to overthrow the, power, the political powers of the day. The hype around Jesus was that he was the savior who would overthrow Rome and set his people free. But that's not what happened. Rome still dominated the land. There were still ruthless leaders who induced fear of imprisonment and persecution. People still died. Hunger and disease were still daily experiences. And the greatest disappointment scandal of all was that the Messiah, Jesus, was executed on the cross. That was not expected from the Messiah. It caused even Jesus' disciples to doubt. Jesus lays these expectations to rest when he tells the crowd that although small in its beginning, the kingdom will become great, even greater than what the people had expected. It would not just comprise of the Jews, but it would include people from every nation. It's not just a physical kingdom of physical blessing, but it's also a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is present now, but won't find its ultimate culmination until the future. That is what Jesus was pointing his listeners to. But how does this word and parable relate to us now? It's not like we have this misconception that Jesus is going to come and overthrow every political power. But I do believe that we do have a misunderstanding, or maybe it's like a false expectation about what the kingdom of heaven is all about. We have this expectation that God is gonna keep us away from experiencing any kind of hardship. We believe that being part of God's kingdom affords us comfort and ease. It's hard for us to grasp that God's rule supreme over everything, and yet we still see evil, injustice, discrimination, hate, still exist in the world today. We don't have to look very far, and we're inundated by stories that break our heart. We hear about what's happening in Afghanistan, and we're sad and angry. We hear about the, the, the earthquake in Haiti and how much destruction that's left behind, and our hearts break. We're left feeling hopeless, asking God, Where are you? It seems like God's losing the battle. It seems like Satan's having his way in the world. And it can feel like that even in our own lives. We want to believe that God is in control and wants only what's best for us, but it's hard to stand firm in that conviction when we're faced with trials and hardships daily. Where is God when hopeful parents find out that they can't have kids? Where is God when a marriage is struggling and they're in the verge of divorce? Where is God when as a single person you've been waiting for that significant other and you're still left waiting? Where is God when you find out that a loved one has a terminal illness? How are we to reconcile with the evil, injustice, and suffering that we see in the world today with what God is saying about his kingdom? This parable is Jesus' answer. The kingdom of God may seem small, and insignificant, but God is at work and will continue to be at work until the very end of time. The parable of the Mustard and leaven should give us hope. Yes, things may not be the way that we desire, but Jesus has already prevailed over Satan and evil. Jesus has won victory on the cross. He has defeated sin and death. Although sin and evil still exist today, we know that it's only temporary. And that one day in the future, all the hate, pain, and justice will all cease to exist. The kingdom of God may have humble beginnings, but it is growing and we see evidence of it every single day. If we look closely enough, even in the midst of our hardship and suffering, we can see that God is building his kingdom. When it comes to kingdom growth, Right. Here are three truths that we can hold firm to. Here are three truths that we can hold firm to. The first, kingdom growth is intentional and purposeful. It is intentional and purposeful. In verse 31, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. The small mustard seed that Jesus describes didn't find its way on the ground randomly. It's not like it was picked up by the wind or carried by an animal and found its way home into the ground. We're told that a man took this single seed and planted it in his field. There was intention and purpose in what this man is doing. He didn't take a handful of seeds and just scatter it, hoping that some of it would take root. He took one specific seed and put it in a field. And once again, what was common in those days was to put it in a garden. So he was doing something that was countercultural. He had a purpose and intention in doing that. God always has a plan and purpose in what he's doing. He does not leave it to chance or randomness. We may not understand his plans or purposes always, but we can trust that he knows what he is doing. He has a plan in accomplishing his will, and sometimes that plan may seem foolish to us. Right? Take, for instance, God's plan of salvation. The gospel is foolishness to an unbeliever. The thought that a powerful God would send his one and only son down from heaven to be a humble servant and to die on the cross is foolishness. It was so foolish that even Jesus' own disciples couldn't believe that plan but what the world sees as foolishness, we see as the good news. When we think about injustice and suffering, it's easy to think that God doesn't care, but that's not the truth. We have to separate the lies of the devil from the truth of what God tells us. And he cares very much about our suffering and injustice. God has a plan for redemption. If you think back at the times that you were struggling or suffering, you would never want to experience that pain again. But if you look closely enough, if you look hard enough, you can see how God has redeemed it or is redeeming it. One area where God has redeemed my pain is in ministry. Right? For years and years, I was a youth pastor. Right? I was the high school pastor here at Metro. And I've transitioned now to the early marriage ministry. Right? That's just a long name for anybody who's been married in the last few years. But, The transition happened not because I got tired of youth ministry. It wasn't because I got tired of the kids. But it was because God was breaking my heart for marriages. God was growing my heart for marriages. Because so much of my own experience in marriage was painful. Esther and I have been married for six years. And it's been a wonderful six years now, I can say, in hindsight. But for the first two years, it was really, really difficult. It was really, really hard. Like, learning to transition from a single person to living with somebody is a very difficult transition. And there was a lot of heartache. There was a lot of pain. And I don't want to see other couples going through that pain. God took my pain, my trauma, and brought something beautiful out of it. He's redeemed it so that now I can minister to married couples. We may not understand the suffering and injustice that we see in the world, but we can be confident that God is redeeming it, that he will bring beauty out of brokenness. God is intentional and purposeful in growing his kingdom. The second truth is that kingdom growth is hidden and inconspicuous, but it is very real. It is hidden and inconspicuous, but very real. In both parables, Jesus explains how, in both parables, Jesus never explains how growth happens. We're told that the mustard seed is planted and then it becomes a tree, or that the leaven is worked into the dough and it has permeated all of it. We are never told how those things happen, right? If we have, um, back in elementary school, we probably learn about how a tree grows or how a plant grows, right? We know that it's through carbon dioxide and water being synthesized by the sunlight through a process called photosynthesis. We may know how the plant grows, but to the naked eye, we still can't see it happening. It's hidden. It's inconspicuous. The only way that we can recognize growth is because we see the plant getting bigger. In the same way, it's for the leaven. We may not know exactly what's happening with the fermented dough that is being worked and kneaded into this new dough, but we see that it's indistinguishable at the end and that there's rise to the bread. The kingdom of heaven is active even if it's not fully observable at this time because it is beginning with the transformation of our hearts. Kingdom growth begins with the heart. God is not interested in changing behavior. He doesn't care. He doesn't want you to act like a, a, a Christian. He wants you to be a Christian. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you to know him and for you to be known by him. We talk about obedience a lot in the church. And it's not because we're interested in you living a certain way. But obedience is about renewing, the renewing of our hearts and turning our affections and our desires towards Jesus. Oftentimes we reduce our Christian faith to a bunch of do's and do nots. But that does not address the heart issue. Jesus wants to transform your heart. He wants you to know the goodness of his grace. He wants you to let go of your pain and shame and to, for you to fully experience and understand what it means to be loved unconditionally. This is why Jesus did not display his power as people expected. Jesus could indeed perform powerful miracles, but they were always short, they're short-lived and selective. Jesus chose not to operate from this flashy display of power miraculous, from the miraculous very often because he knew in the end those are the things that people would chase after him for. They would only go to him to witness, to see his power and see what he could do rather than to experience his presence. Jesus knew that they were chasing signs and wonders, expecting to witness what he could do, but in doing so, they would miss out on the true gift, which was himself. What is it that attracts you to Jesus? Is it hope for a comfortable life? Is it desire to see God bless you? What is your reason for choosing Jesus? The truth is that if we're pursuing Jesus for any other reason other than to be with him, we're going to be disappointed. Because then our relationship with him will only be based on what he does for us. When he gives us what we want, we, are, we feel like we're so close to him. When he doesn't give us what we pray for, we feel so distant from him. We will always be disappointed, and we will never be satisfied unless Jesus himself is the one that we are pursuing, not the things that he gives to us. The kingdom of heaven is not about these grand displays or manifestations of power. God is active and working, but growth in the kingdom of heaven is hidden and inconspicuous. It has this clandestine nature because he's after your heart. When you think about spiritual growth, there's a reason why prayer, fasting, reading the Bible, and silence and solitude are foundational to spiritual growth. It's a reason why that, those things turn into lasting and deep growth in our lives. Yes, retreats, being part of a community, exercising spiritual gifts, those things help in our walk with Jesus. But what will create and what will keep lasting growth is being alone with God in those hidden and deep and quiet places. Kingdom growth is intentional and purposeful, but it's also hidden and inconspicuous. God wants to do a work in your hearts, and it's through hidden means. The third truth that we have is kingdom growth is all-encompassing and impactful. Kingdom growth is all-encompassing and impactful. In verse 33, we're told that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. The leaven or yeast is a small amount compared to the 60 pounds of flour, but by the end of kneading, it permeates through the whole dough. The old leaven is indistinguishable from the new dough. In the same way, the kingdom of God permeates everything and leaves a lasting impact. On everything that it comes into contact with. The movement of the gospel began with Jesus, but through the work of the Holy Spirit and the disciples, it has reached millions. But there is still work to be done. We, as disciples of Jesus, have a part in growing this kingdom. Our call and purpose in life is not our jobs, it's not our kids, it's not to make a lot of money and prepare for retirement. Our call and purpose is to make disciples for Jesus. It is to embody Christ to everybody we come across. It is to bring healing to those who are hurting. It is to bring freedom from those who are in bondage. It is to bring rest for those who are weary. We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus as we point people to Jesus. This call on our life is inclusive but I think sometimes we can be selective about who we are pointing to, Jesus. When it comes to building God's kingdom, we have to get out of this habit of thinking that missions is going to a foreign country and helping those who are less fortunate. Your mission field is where God is placing you here at this moment. There's a reason why God brought you to this place for this time. To be honest, New Jersey is the last place I ever wanted to end up in, right? Being from Boston, New Jersey, New York, it was like the enemy, right? I'm a huge Red Sox fan. I know the Yankees as the evil empire, and there's so many of you guys who cheer for them, right? It's part of my grace or God, the grace of God that I can be in community with you. But there is nothing appealing or there was nothing appealing about New Jersey that wanted me, that made me want to move here. Right, Every time I met somebody from New Jersey in college, I'd be like, oh, where are you from? And they always say, New York. And then later on, I find out they're from New Jersey. I'm like, man, you guys have no pride for your state. Why should I ever want to go there? You have no love for New Jersey. I guess there's nothing worth anything in New Jersey. And so, but I understand I'm here for a reason. Right? I understand that God brought me here to Metro, to this New Jersey area for a reason. This is where God wanted me to be. This is where God wanted me to minister. And in a lot of ways, I've come around on New Jersey. I will never say I love it, but there has been so much good that has come from me being here. I have this church that I love, Metro. This is where I met my wife, who is a Jersey girl. And whether I like it or not, my kids will now be New Jersey natives. (laughs) They will never root for the Yankees or the Knicks but they'll have to say that they're from New Jersey. As you think about your community and your relationships, who is it that God wants you to minister to? Who is it that he wants you to encourage? Who in your life does God want you to share Jesus with? Is it a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, a boss? And yes, even on Family Sunday where we're going to be praying for the families and students who are going back to school, is it your kids? Are you sharing Jesus with your kids? We all have a mission field. Your mission field is where God has placed you and to the people he brings into your life. But this is just one part of the all-encompassing nature of the kingdom of heaven. Not only is it about witnessing to others, but the kingdom of God also impacts every aspect of your life. The growth of the kingdom of heaven is not just about making disciples for Jesus, but it's also about growing in our discipleship to Jesus. Growth in the kingdom of heaven is not just about making disciples for Jesus. It is also about our discipleship to Jesus. If we are kingdom people, we are lo- our loyalty and commitment to Jesus should be increasing. If we are kingdom people, we should be embodying kingdom values. When it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, are you wholly surrendered to him? Do we try to live in obedience to the things that God wants for us to do and the desires for our lives? Or do we just try to find loopholes in our faith? Many of us struggle with partial obedience. There are certain areas of our lives that we are unwilling to give God access to. We love using the word but with God. We'll say, God, I'll submit to you on everything, but I'm still going to have sex before marriage. Or God, I'm going to surrender. I will choose to obey you. I will choose to live for you, but I'm still going to gossip because it's not that harmful. Who am I hurting? Or it's God, I'll surrender everything to you. I will give you everything, but I don't want to tithe. What is that but for you? What is one thing that you haven't completely surrendered over to him? One way or another, God will reveal it to you. I had one of these moments of revelation this week. Earlier in the week, uh, Esther and I went bowling um, with our other couples from Metro for our early marriage ministry bowling league. And at the bowling alley, while we were bowling, we got into this disagreement. And at first, we were just being really cold to each other. Right? For those who were there, I'm sure you guys noticed, there was just a lot of tension in the air. But we kept it at that. But then it just started escalating once we are going home. I got in the car and I'm driving and she makes this comment saying, hun, you're driving so aggressively. Be gentle with my car. And so I'm annoyed and I respond, you don't like the way I'm driving? All right, you go drive. And I pull over to the side. And then she's like, you're being so dramatic. And I'm just like, at this point, I don't know why, but I'm like livid. I like get out of the car, close the door. I start walking. I'm like, I'll meet you at home. And so I walk for an hour and a half from Bergenfield to Crestkill. And when I got home, Esther was asleep. And the next day, she left for a friend's wedding. For two days... We didn't speak. And it probably would have been or lasted a lot longer, except for the fact that while I was working on this sermon, God was revealing to me that I was struggling with partial obedience. I was like working on this sermon, and then I just hear God saying, you can't preach this sermon. I'm like, what do you mean, God, I can't preach this sermon? I've been working on this sermon. I've been giving you everything. I've been putting my heart and soul into this sermon. What do you mean I can't preach this sermon? And then he's like, you've given everything except for your pride. Because I knew that God wanted me to reconcile with Esther. For those two days of silence, I knew what he wanted from me. But in my stubbornness, I was unwilling to give up my pride. I didn't want to be the first one to give in or to initiate that conversation because I felt like that meant defeat. I was more concerned with winning the fight and being right in the argument rather than doing what was right. And so I swallowed my pride, or to be more accurate, I was, just, I was humbled by God. <laughs> right, I, humble, I was humbled by God, and I called Esther right away. Yeah. God was doing a kingdom work in me. God was using unassuming means to bring me to a place of surrender. The kingdom of God may have humble beginnings, but it is destined for greatness because God is working and he will not rest until the very end. We may not be able to see what God is doing. We may not be able to understand it at all times, but we see evidence of his handiwork in the world. Kingdom growth is all-encompassing and impactful. It may be hidden and inconspicuous, but we trust that God has a plan and purpose in the things that he is doing. Metro. Let's live into our identity as kingdom people, Amen. joining in with God with what he's doing in the world. Amen. Will you bow your heads with me? God, so much of what you say to us is very simple. You know, there are things in the Bible, there are words that you said to us that... Um, can be confusing, but so much of what you say to us through your word is very simple. I think the challenge is that we just don't want to do it. We just don't want to do it. There's always a but or exception to our faith. But I just pray right now um, for just courage for every single person here in this room, but every person watching online, that not only would you reveal to us what our but is, the exception that we're making from surrendering completely and fully to you. But that also, God, you will give us the strength and the courage to surrender ourselves, surrender our sin, to surrender our selfishness, to surrender whatever it is, to surrender to you, our King. I pray, Father, for anybody who is discouraged at this moment, for anybody who is going through a hard time through hardship, through trauma, through pain, that you would remind them of this passage, this parable, that what they are going through is temporary, that the kingdom of God may be hidden, but it is very real, and that you are working in our lives, God, behind the scenes, behind everything that else is in front of us. And so, God, I just pray that we would have just a deeper joy for you, that we would be chasing and seeking after you for who you are, God, and nothing that, no other reason than for who you are. I pray right now, God, that you would convict our hearts and that you would lead us, God, to joining in with you, God, and what the work that you're doing in the world. I thank you, God, for the examples that you've given to us and even, God, Scott and Christina's work in Thailand. But I just pray not only would we see that as mission work, but may we also see, God, the people that you brought into our lives in this place, God, as our mission field. We know you're working. We know you are growing your kingdom, God. May we just have a part in it. We may, we, may we be able to experience, Father, just your grace and your power as we join in with you, Father. And so, Father, may we just continue to worship you right now. Whether it's through prayer, through the songs, through just meditating on this word, may we just worship you, God. Because, yes, Jesus, you did not come with a lot of fanfare, but yet you deserve all the worship. pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. At this time, if you could take out your communication card or pull it up on your app, there's a couple of next steps that I'd like to lead us in. The first, I'm committing my life to Jesus for the first time. If this is you, please check that off. We have uh, a pastor and leaders at the table outside who just want to walk with you and, reach, and just you know, walk alongside you as you're making this decision. But this is the greatest decision that you could ever make, that you would give your life to Jesus and begin a relationship with him. Second, I will pray for the teachers, students, and families in our church and in my community this week as they pre- pre- prepare to return back to school. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of worry. School is about to start up again. And so we're going to be praying in a moment um, just for the students and families and the schools. But may this be your commitment this week, that you will lift up families, students, and even the teachers who are going back to school, who have to continue on life even through COVID. Um, even if you don't have kids, right? When we call, talk about the church in a community, right? Every kid here is our kids. So may this be a commitment that you make this week. Third, I will participate in the Metro Olympics and picnic on Sunday, September 12th. Uh, I think we're covered with volunteers and help, but the greatest need is just participation. And so I hope that this encourages you uh, just to sign up and to be part of the games and the activities. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, but if that's you, please check that one off. And then the last, I will ask God to reveal to me who he desires for me to share the gospel with. There are obvious, there are always obvious people that God is uh, wants us to share the gospel with, to share Jesus with. But then there are people who sometimes we forget about. You know, for me, one of the people is my dad. And so there's times where because of our relationship, like sometimes I don't think about because he's not a believer and because of our relationship, like there's times where I'll forget to pray for him or forget to bring, uh, talk to him about Jesus. And so for you, right, may this be a commitment that you make that God would really do a deep work and reveal to you who he wants you to share Jesus with, who you can minister to.